When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. Um, we are recording on March 25th. Uh, if you're listening soon after this is being released, you're in early April, and we're hoping the new month is bringing better news uh, from the world. We actually were going to take off last week, and this would be back, but we're not going anywhere. We know people aren't <laughs> going anywhere. We thought it would be a good time maybe to do a little extra one. And we're not going to talk about what's going on in the world today, except by, I don't know, inference, <laughs> which is we're going to talk about some of our favorite travel writing, travel books, escapist kind of books. So the prompt, that Rebecca's idea was to talk about travel books. I maybe put a spin on it in a Jeff kind of way. So <laughs> I would expect we'll nothing less. We see how it goes. But these are books where if maybe you wouldn't be, if you wouldn't be sad to be out of your house for a little bit, these might be the kind of books that are especially good for you. Is that fair? I'm within that parameter. Well, is that sure. fair? Sure. That's fine. Okay, what was your what was your understanding of what I have screwed up? <laughs> I don't think you've screwed up. I'm excited about whatever the oh. Jeff twist is. I am um, yeah. not surprised that there is a Jeff <laughs> twist. <laughs> just just throw the fastball. <laughs> just throw just throw I the mean, heater nuke. Also, I'm yeah. fine with it. Like this is a completely self-serving topic for me yeah. because I'm mourning. You know, like, we're all everybody's experiencing painful and stressful and frustrating things and i am well you had to put press the red button on I a had big to press trip. the red let's button be, let's on be a honest. big trip i'm a person to whom travel is really important and so at least like revisiting some travel writing and some work that's been really mm. important to me um feels like a way to sort of like throw some cookies toward that part of my yes. soul uh, what nourishing gruel <laughs> we can dole out to you in the form of travel yeah. writing um, all right, so we're going to come back to that. I, I have a bunch. We'll see how many okay. we get through. But before we do that, let's uh, do a sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95. And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right. Um, why don't you start? Okay. Uh, Madam Wonderlust, where do you want to start with? These are in no particular order. I might adjust based on yeah. what you've said, kind of in classic recommendations. Mine are in no particular order either, and I would like Madam Wanderlust to go on my, I don't know, headstone, next set of business cards, go. something. Um, the book that got me thinking about doing this show, I think, is the place that I will start. And it's uh, a memoir that came out last year, I believe, um, called To Shake the Sleeping Self by Jedediah hmm. Jenkins. Um he was on the eve of turning 30, um, having the pretty classic quarter life crisis and was like staring down the barrel of like, what if I end up having this whole life that is not the life that I want to have? Um, part of that is that he was raised uh, in a very conservative Christian family. Uh, and he was coming to terms with his identity as a young gay man and trying to reconcile what that was doing to his spiritual life and also to his family relationships. And he had a friend who was uh, talking about how they had, or an acquaintance, someone that he encountered had just gotten back from a cycling trip where they had ridden from like Canada all the way to Patagonia. And he was like, I'm going to hmm. do that. Um he had never really done any cycling before. This is like the bike equivalent of Cheryl Strayed putting 900 pounds worth of stuff in her backpack the first day that she goes hiking on the PCT in Wild. Um, he doesn't train. It's like a very foolhardy thing to set out for, but he sets a date for departure. He tells everyone in his life that he's going to do this. He gets a buddy who's going to go with him. And so then he can't back out. He does it. Um, he spends 16 months cycling from Oregon to Patagonia. He chronicled the trip on Instagram. Um, I'm actually kind of surprised that I didn't encounter his story on Instagram that way, um, where photos, <laughs> like his photos and his really beautiful writing about the trip and reflecting on what it was doing to him just sort of went not quite viral, I guess, but he got a lot of followers that way. Um, and he is doing the kind of soul searching that a person does on a big trip like this. It's a huge physical undertaking, but also a really big emotional and spiritual one to be displaced from everything that you know to be very lonely, to be doing something challenging and through a whole bunch of different cultures and countries. And there were, you know, really beautiful times and really scary ones. And he just grapples with the, the big questions of his life and then also just the big questions of, you know, capital L life um it was it's really beautiful um and it, there's a line in it that i think about often where he talks about how if discontent is your disease travel is a medicine um yeah mm -hmm. uh, and i just really loved it it i felt seen by um by parts of the book where he writes about how getting out of his environment and displacing himself is the thing that makes him feel like most present and most awake um, to what's happening around him. And that then you take that 
like sort of vision that you've had of yourself or that encounter with that you've had with your true self back into your regular life and travel certainly functions like that um, for me. So I've been thinking a lot about, about him and this journey following him on Instagram <laughs> uh, since then. But I think it's been a year and a half maybe since I read the book, maybe longer than that. Mm. And I think about it all the time, which I think is a good mm. sign for something. So that's my first pick to shake the sleeping yeah. self. Yeah, so I've got a bunch that can connect. I, I went to a lot of backlist, mm. like deep backlist for me, and I don't know what that says. Maybe that's just sort of the point of entry was deeper in the mine, and so the the capillary caves were also <laughs> deep in the mine since that's where I started. Um, I'm gonna go. Well, there's two I want to recommend by William Least Heat Moon, Blue Highways and River Horse. Blue Highways is the first one. It was a big book when I was a kid. It came out in 1982. It's a travel book. It's, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for 42 Whoa. weeks from 1982 to 1983. William Least Heat Moon, he's from Kansas City. Um, he's part um, European, but also Osage, uh, Native American population. So it was a big deal around my hometown of Lawrence, Kansas, which has Haskell Indian Nations University, but it was also a big book. He was from a local area. So it loomed larger in my mind than it probably did other places because it was a big book by a big local author, um, who was a native uh, voice in a time where there really wasn't native voices. I mean, e even think about 40 years ago, we're still working on this. Um, but Blue Highways was the first one. And it was a writ also weird speaks to me because it was written. It's about a time in his life. It was 1978. That's the year I was born. So like he's riding around. He, he loses his job as a teacher and he takes a road trip. And the titular Blue Highways are... The blue, the highways on the map, like a print map that maybe not everyone remembers mm. now. Remember how the little, little tiny highways were those yeah. light blue ink? Yeah. So he only traveled those light blue ink highways. Um, it was a 13,000 mile journey. He got a van with a bunk and a camping stove and a copy of Walt Whitman Leaves of Grass. <laughs> and he took off. Perfect. Um, and so he, he named the van Ghost Dancing in, in, honor, in honor of sort of some of his own um, tribal traditions. And it's only three months. It's a long book. Like I remember being really intimidated because it's this huge book that's not as big now. But when I was a kid, it was on my dad's shelf and it just seemed like a big deal. Um, but it's kind of like, it's like Steinbeck with um, like Bill Bryson Ooh. kind of in terms of it's both funny, but also serious and like quasi- historical spiritual like he encounters a native american medical student and like an evangelical hitchhiker some runaways a dude that builds boats like it's a really eclectic interesting beautifully written meditative um mundane epic mm -hmm. right of just going across the country and then river horse came up there's some other books too prairie earth was in the middle i found that one it was more of a cultural history of, of i think Osage Indians in Chase County, Kansas. Not so much of a travel one. Also a really interesting book. Also really thick. But then the next one I really like is also William Lee's Tate Moon. It's called um, River Horse, in which he goes from New York to Astoria, Oregon, across the middle of the country by boat, trying to figure out how to get from this river to that lake to this river to that oh. lake. And again, it's a huge thing. He does... Again, he's trying to capture some of the magic of Blue Highways, and I think he does largely, but Blue Highways is still the signal work. Um, it, it just... It's great. And they're big. You get lost in them. The kind of things you cannot absolutely, you absolutely cannot do right now. Uh, it's really wonderful. And I hope, I hope people are still reading William Least Heat Moon. I, I just don't know. I sometimes feel like 
it's hard to know what's going to remain and what's going to get lost. So I want to take the opportunity if people are interested in that. Also, just the naming is fascinating. So um, his Osage lineage, his father's last name was Heat Moon. Says his older his older brother was then Little Heat Moon. Mm-hmm. So then, therefore, he is Least Heat Moon, which I think is awesome, as that's the naming went. He is the the least of the Heat Moons, uh, the third of three. Um, it was such a big deal that there's actually a follow up book which I've never read that I, I had forgotten even exists called. I think writing Blue Highways, which was a 30-year anniversary book that he wrote about the writing of the book and then the reception to it later. Because for a while it was, you know, kind of in the in the in the vein of James Michener, um, it took that spot of like big adult travel logs, and that book seems to have kind of gotten gone away. Um, these 600-page journey books, um, I wish they didn't. I would read those. But that's the number one wreck is Blue Highways, and then the number two wreck, if you like that, is River Horse. Um, both by William Least Heat Moon, who's still alive, which seems unbelievable. But he he was he was he wasn't that old when he wrote um, uh, Blue Highways. He was only thirty eight years old, um, which when I was a kid seemed like about ten thousand years old. But anyway, <laughs> those are both new to me. Are are they? I was I wondered because you were around the Kansas City area, and I wondered if you ever had seen them on a Barnes and Noble table or something. I, I, I it's sad that they're that's. I'm glad to yeah. introduce it to you, but I'm sad that you didn't yeah, already know about to, it because that doesn't speak well. We moved to Kansas City in 1990, and yeah. I was only eight then. So I think by the time my Barnes & Noble years rolled around in the like the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe he wasn't on mm. the shelves so much, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to yeah. pick those up. I hope there's a good audio. I, I, I would imagine if they did well, it'd be on audio. Um, also, I have to say that when I was doing my, trying to remember the biographical details on Wikipedia, it lists his genre as deep map travel literature, okay. which I've never heard before, but I like that. Interesting. All right. Where do you want to uh, go let's next? Let's see. My next one. Let's see. People whose perspectives we don't often get on travel to build off of okay. yours. Guidebook to Relative Strangers, Journeys into Race, mm. Motherhood, and History by Camille Dungy. Uh, she is primarily a poet and an essayist. Um, she's a a professor, a lecturer, and this is a collection of memoir personal essays that she wrote about traveling the country to do her job, to give lectures, to teach workshops, um, when her daughter was very young and she was um, frequently having her daughter travel with her and what that experience was like as a black woman um, traveling to remote places like, you know, very rural spots in Alaska Mm. that hardly ever see black people um, being out in nature on a hike with other writers while she's at, um, I can't remember if it's Breadloaf or if she even names it, but while she's at one of the prestigious uh, writer colonies that she had received uh, a grant to attend and getting injured. There's this like, I'm never going to forget this story that she tells about getting injured on the hike and trying to navigate like how much help to allow herself to need from her colleagues on this hike who were all white people, like how much weakness to show. And there's a point where she's crawling and thinking about what it means to be a black woman, like literally crawling with white people walking around her on this trail. Um, there's just so much there's so many layers to the experience of um 
of travel and also of being out in nature and of to carrying these multiple parts of her identity into spaces where those identities are not commonly seen. And she writes about it so, so beautifully because she's a professional poet. Um, and mm. she's thinking about being a woman in the world, being a black person in the world, being a black woman who's a mother in the world and the intersections of all those identities and parts of her life and how they come out as she's traveling, the particular challenges, the particular really beautiful parts of them if she wanted to write a memoir about like what she did each year for 10 years like I would absolutely read it it was it's just so beautiful and it's been a couple of years since I read guidebook to relative strangers and I I also think about this one and recommend it really frequently it's not a straight up travel memoir but it's it's largely about being on the road and being in other places and how she processes those moments and how like how she shows up in them and how other people show up in them um, and mm. what she learned through it i really loved it i'm gonna go poets too um related to that this is not a not a travel book so i guess what i found myself drawn to and thinking about this is books that evoke a strong sense of mm. place so either they're go these people are going to these places for the first time they not may not be moving around but you're really getting a sense of them being located and reacting to that relocation or, or dislocation so this one's called The House by the Sea, which I don't know if there's a subgenre of these things, but books about people going to a house out in the middle of something, mm. I will read these a thousand times out of a thousand. It's by Mary Sarton. Again, this is Deep Backlist. Um, she's a poet who found some surprising fame later in life as a memoirist. Um, I can't remember the name of her first journal. There's a whole bunch of them. If you look up May, oh, sorry, not Mary, May Sarton. I've never said the name out loud because it's one of those private... I don't know anyone else has read any of these <laughs> books, um, but she is, had spent the last 15 years in a house in New Hampshire that she had remodeled, and then one day decides to move um, to a house by the sea in a little Maine village that's completely isolated uh, during the spring, winter, and fall, but then people come in the summer. But it's her writing about her life there, the renewal um, her work, her relationships, it's just really beautiful. And it's about the interplay of where you are and who you are and how those things are both related and kind of not related. Like, you know, I, I use the Emerson, your giant goes with you wherever you go. But sometimes the giant going changes the giant uh, a little bit. The giant also has to adapt uh, to the new location. And May Sarton's The House by the Sea is one of those situations where you see someone playing that out by all intents and per by all accounts she was sort of a difficult woman to know um but it makes for really good journal <laughs> really good journaling <laughs> i have to say and if you like this there's boy how many let's see there's like four or five other ones the journal of solitude at 70 um recovering at 82 i also like older people writing these yeah um that's something else i like i once did a genre kryptonite for the site back in the old die old days called um Old men waiting to die is one of my genre kryptonites, um, and I it does, I, I realized that. I shouldn't have I shouldn't have uh, kept it to men. I'll read about old women uh, waiting to die as well, or or anyone in between, or anyone that however they identify. I'll read about you when you're by the sea, old, looking back at your life too. I guess the the one that's probably more commonly read that's in the genre is Pilgrim at Tinker Creek by Annie Diller. I was Dillard. just thinking of that one. If you like that, you will like um, The House by the Sea by May Sarton. The, the, 
I was going to say, these are so, they're on Kindle, but no audio for these. Mm. That's how backlisty <laughs> I'm going uh, right now. So not a travel. It also reminded me a little bit of um, The Matries by Annie Dillard, mm. which is a novel, but it's a fiction about people living alone by the water. I, I guess I'll read these till the till the heat death of the universe. <laughs> I love this stuff. I don't know why. It was, I'm sure my my therapist would have interesting things to say about this. I'll have to bring yeah, it up next Deeply time. idiosyncratic uh, reading preferences are just fascinating. Yeah, and it's out there, man. It's fascinating yeah. stuff. Um, you recommended Pilgrim at Tinker Creek to me the year uh, that I was just living inside when women were birds by Terry Tempest. Yes. And it was, that was spot on. That was like, you you get to ride on that win, I think. You know, <laughs> well, that's unfair because it's set in the Blue, Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains, which is like really close to <laughs> yeah. you. Like, I couldn't have crafted a better recommendation out of whole cloth. I don't think well, it, it was a good exist. one. Yeah. Um, um, okay. All right. Oh, let's do a sponsor. Yeah. Let's do a sponsor and we'll come back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet... You can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Okay, now we're back. Okay. Rebecca, where well, do you I don't have a book about a person living in a house by the sea. No, don't worry. I can do this all day. <laughs> but I do have James Salter. <laughs> oh, I wondered. I didn't pick, but I wondered. Um, my current pick, I love James Salter in all of his... I mean, pick it out of a bag, right? Yeah, in all of his manifestations. um, I'm saving solo faces. I haven't read that yet. I know. I know. I just like... Which is about what rock climbing in the the I like can't bring myself to... You you got to leave one bite of... One slice of cake in the tray to know there's still cake, right? Yes. But last... About this time last year, I was visiting a friend and they had a galley of don't save anything, uncollected essays, Mm. articles, and profiles, which I promptly picked up and then spent the entire (laughs) weekend reading. Um, Salter's bread and butter when he was not writing incredible novels um, was journalism. And a lot of it is travel journalism and profiles of people who do things like rock climbing and skiing. And so even when the pieces aren't specifically about travel, they are very informed by the place that he's in and by the activities of that Mm. place. And his writing is just, it's just beautiful and like quietly profound and all of the things that is fiction does show up in these pieces also there's a really memorable one where he's at like one of the big east i think it's east coast one of the big east coast um ski resorts interviewing you know like the guy who has been skiing the toughest run on this mountain for decades and the guy agrees to let james salter interview him but they have to meet at the top of the mountain at like you know an ungodly early hour just as the light is starting to come up and he will only talk to salter if salter if salter skis the run with him (laughs) 
<laughs> and it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it's just phenomenal. There's so much like joy for the experience of the world and just deep. I think he had a real like deep Epicurean kind of sensibility. His writing about food is really wonderful. That comes up too. Um, there's a piece, I think they, he and his wife were living in France at the time that one of their children was born. And he writes about what that experience is like versus when you're at the hospital in the US. Like people just show up to your room with bottles of wine mm. and the doctors and nurses are toasting. And it was also like the 70s. Um, but, <laughs> but just really... I I think really loved um, the experience of being out in the world and had this deep curiosity that I, I love spending time with a mind like that. So that collection is called Don't Save Anything. A lot of those pieces are about travel. And there is a collection specifically of his travel writing called There and Then that um, was put together not too hmm. long ago that I have but have not read yet. So James Salter. Cool. Um, boy. That's Sorry. so good. I love that. It makes me want to read. Go read. Read some. Uh, now, I'm going to go... I guess I'll go to Europe. I have a lot of European picks. Um, I'm going to go with another one that there's a good chance no one else who's listening to this has heard of, though it just came out last year. Maybe, well, I'm not sure. Maybe this is a reissue. I only read it recently. It's called A Month in Siena by Hisham Matar. And basically, he goes... Look, there's going to be a theme here. He goes to Italy, to Siena, Italy, to immerse himself in something. And this happens to be eight significant works from the Sienese School of Painting, uh -huh. which was like 700 years ago, like 13 or 12 to 1600. So this is, these are not artists I know. Like they're the lesser known ones from like Caravaggio you've, you've heard of. They're like people who influenced and were influenced by those other more famous mm -hmm. painters. But he's trying to do an art, life, me, them, um, kind, you know, kind of embedding in the culture and the location, but then looking at the art at the same time um, and how like thinking about history and aesthetics and modernity all at the same times, just really beautiful stuff. It also has really beautiful um, reproductions of all the art. And it's the, the, the art themselves is really interesting. I've always liked art history, though I don't know anything about it. So anytime I get a little glimpse into, I don't know, I, I like these little glimpses into worlds. And this one, you get both Siena and this world of art that I don't know much about. So it's sort of a Russian nesting dolls of windows into other um, spheres that I don't know a lot about. Yeah, October just of last year. I felt like it was his other books, I guess, have been around a lot longer. Um, the Return is the most famous one. I think maybe one of uh, National Book Award or something like that. But that's A Month in Siena by Hisham Matar. And if you like art and you like Italy and you like interesting writing, um, that's also very personal. It's also about him and what he's going through as well uh, is really, really beautiful stuff. So um, not... Actually, if James Salter liked art instead of outdoor stuff, you mm -hmm. might get A Month in Siena, actually, is maybe my simplest way. All right. Well, I'm there. sold on that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, you're up next. I don't think I have an easy segue to this one, so I'll no, that's just, fine. I'll you don't have to do jump that. to it because um, we've talked about we talked about the Blue Ridge Mountains. Um, yeah, 
The next one sort of touches on that. It's The Hour of Land, A Personal Topography of America's National Parks by Terry Tempest Williams. Mm. Now, if ever there were a book crafted to go straight (laughs) to the white hot center of my wheelhouse, it's a Terry Tempest Williams book about national parks, uh, Mm. which she published in the spring of 2016 on the um, centennial of the national parks and it is like i think it's 16 of the parks that she features uh, in the book each one gets a chapter that is deep in history and context and also present day um her experience spending time in those places she grew up in the west um, the grand tetons were her family's backyard. Um, She spends a lot of time on the East Coast now in Acadia National Park um, in Maine, but she and her husband have traveled all over and spent just lots of meaningful time in their lives in these national parks. And she uh, spends a lot of time in the book taking the official tours of um, of some of our biggest parks, some of the most popular ones, speaking to rangers, speaking to historians, talking about the origins of that park, how it was established, what it took um, to get that park made, and then what the experience of visiting the park is like for her. She visits each one several times over the course of writing the book um, and is writing about her own relationship with the natural world and also the bigger picture of why we have these national parks. And she, she She discusses Mm. them as our shared inheritance, Um, this natural land that has been set aside that's intended for everyone to be able to have access to space and nature and fundamentally contact with the wildness that we contain within us in the way that she writes about it that in my opinion, nobody else can come close to. Um, it's, so it's part memoir and part history and part social critique. Meaningfully, it came out like right before we started having government shutdowns that included mm, the closing. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That, that included the closing of the national parks for a while. Um, and I'm thinking about it currently because we're watching national parks be overrun right now by people who yeah. are seeking to go outside in the midst of this quarantine, but not only are not observing like proper social distancing on popular trails, but it's really having a significant impact on the conservation efforts around those parks. Not Not to mention that we have an administration that um, has dangled the possibility several times of defunding national parks or taking over parts of them um, to be used for drilling and other other natural resources rather than preserving them as they are intended to be. So it's um, it's unavoidably a political and social issue. And she manages to wrap that into really beautiful contemplation of what these spaces have meant to her um, and what these spaces mm. mean to all of us. Hmm. Another genre I like um, of, of, I guess it's not, it doesn't really qualify as travel writing. It, it qualifies as travel reading. Okay is expats writing about the place they've been living Mm, in, right? mm -hmm. Um, So this is an author I've been meaning to get to for a long time, but I started with the most recent novel, though he has a lot, not a novel, it's a memoir. Um, It's Autumn Light by Pico Iyer, I believe how you say that last name, I-Y-E-R. I looked it up, but I couldn't find a pronunciation. Um, But he, his wife is Japanese, and he's lived in Japan for a long time. And his most recent book is coming back to Japan after traveling to his father-in-law has died suddenly. And so he's, he's looking at his life in Japan with his, his, his partner there um, and the everydayness of it again, kind of with fresh eyes. 
um, he's an older, so he's thinking about his own parents' age, his children having grown up, and they go to the, they return to their everyday life in Japan, but their world is different now because a meaningful person in their life is gone. So you get to see him re-encounter things he's become accustomed to, so you get to encounter them for the first time. Mm. Um, and so see Japan in the way that he sees it as new but also familiar. A very interesting um, feeling I got from it where he's not writing it for someone who he knows hasn't seen it, but he's kind of writing it for himself to re-remind himself of what his life is and what it isn't and where he is and where he isn't. Um, and the writing is gorgeous. I, I, I was one of those authors, I by looking at the backlist, his backlist, I'm like, okay, if I like this, I'm going to read all oh, of these. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the backlist looks really great. Like one of them is called uh, Falling Off the Map, Some Lonely Places of the World, um, The Global Soul, Jet Lag, Shopping Malls, and The Search for Home. Like this stuff just sounds fantastic. And I've been circling him for a while. And when I saw this one, it's relatively short and it's more personal, which I thought, okay, if I like this, this is a good sign. I can go other ways. So that's um, Autumn Light um, by Pico Iyer, who uh, is British. Um, and I think he's from England, but his parents are from India. And his his pen name is Pico Iyer, but his full name is Siddhartha Pico Raghaven Iyer. Mm. And Raghaven Raghavan, mm. um, sometimes, sometimes you'll see it by... Um, uh, just Siddhartha Iyer, I think. I got confused one time. I'm mm. trying to let people know if they see it in different ways. But his his more famous um, pen name is Pico Iyer. So there you go. Awesome. Uh, to piggyback off of national parks, we can't talk about America's public land without talking about how that land originally belonged to Native mm. Americans. And I'm currently listening to a really phenomenal book. Amanda, or I think initially recommended it to me. I've been starting to see it popping up more places. A really recent release called Spirit Run, a 6,000 mile marathon mm -hmm. through North America's stolen land. It's by Noe Alvarez. Um, he grew up in Yakima, Washington, was working at an apple packing plant um, where his mother also worked. He had received a university scholarship um, as a first generation Latino college goer and was just like struggling to fit in and to find something that felt good in life. Um, and then he learned about this Native American First Nations movement that's called the Peace and Dignity Journeys, which are epic, like truly epic marathons across North America um, that are meant to renew. And I'm uh, cribbing from the synopsis now to try to summarize well, but they're meant to renew cultural connections across the country. Um, he joins a group of uh, people from many native tribes. They're all runners. They're all also symbolically running from something. Um, and he tells their stories while he's also telling his own story about a four month long journey from Canada to Guatemala that he did on his mm. feet uh, while running. I think a, a recurring theme for me is people putting their bodies on the line in really um, ambitious, dangerous, like attempting big physical feats as a way of tapping into something spiritual and emotional and doing it in displaced places, getting out of their regular everyday is something that comes up like to shake the sleeping self. It comes up here. It's in a few other um, books that I would recommend. I love 
the mixing of all of those things. And then he's also got a really healthy dose, um, not even dose, a big framework really around the whole book um, that looks at political, the political and cultural landscape that give us this natural landscape and how they've impacted it. And also what capitalist society does to natural spaces um, and to the identities and the cultures that originally existed in those natural spaces that then we colonize them. Um, so I'm not mm. finished with it yet, but I can tell it's going to be one that I hold on to a long time. So that is Spirit Run by Noe Alvarez. I've got a great segue there. Okay. Just to pat myself on the back. Um, the Motorcycle Diaries oh, yes. by Che Guevara, which in which um, young Ernesto, who is just out of medical school, I can't remember now, he may have graduated already anyway, and his friend take... It's called the Motorcycle Diaries, but really it starts out on this motor bike. It's like a bicycle with a little motor on it. It's it's not the <laughs> it's not the one you think about, but I think later um, uh, comes on to get a bigger bike. But it's it's interesting now how it's changed. You know, it is a political document. It's a coming. It's a political awakening of one of the 20th century's great and influential political figures. Um, the original marketing copy was. Das Kapital meets Easy Rider, which is implausible, but a wonderful tagline to this. <laughs> it's a great story. It also has turned into a really good movie as well. So you could do a little um, personal book nerd movie club. We might have one of these. Uh, Vanessa and I have talked about doing this um, before. And it, it's one of those. I, I wonder if the people who, the, the dudes I see who wear the Che Guevara shirt have read the motorcycle. Di- I mean, you, you wonder, right? Because mm-hmm. um, it's, it's an interesting and wonderful book. Um, and it's not as, I don't know, it's not as polemic as you might expect from someone who has become kind of a symbol of themselves in later times. It's nice to go back to the source document and see what a human book it is. It's not very long either. It's, I think it's less than 200 pages, um, but really wonderful writing. And it like, like um, your last pick, it's a travel book with a political consciousness, which sometimes... I am guilty of wanting to avoid. In this one, you don't mm. avoid, um, which I'm grateful for as well. Um, that's The Motorcycle Diaries by Che Guevara. All right. This next one does a bunch of things that I love in books altogether. It's called Unbound by Steph Jagger. The quick pitch for it is this is like wild, but on skis. Um, but there's more to it. Uh, Steph Jagger, it's all it's like wild but on skis and hammerhead but for skiing also, where um, mm. Steph Jagger was like living a very successful corporate life. She was in her late 20s or early 30s, like climbing the ladder, doing all the things that you're supposed to do and was not fulfilled and was just like, I'm going to pursue something else. Um, she had been a lifelong skier, so it's not quite hammerhead because she didn't go learn a new skill. Um, but she wanted to test herself and pursue something that felt meaningful Mm. and like a big challenge in hopes like she was fully aware she had no idea what she wanted to do with her life and she was hoping this would help her figure it out so she sets a goal to ski four million vertical feet in a year 
I'm, I'm pretty sure that at the time that was a record. And in order to do this, she has to travel all over the world to like stay in ski season year round. Um, so she's mm. in North and South America. She goes to Asia. She goes to Europe. She has some really memorable skiing adventures in New Zealand, which has both like very big commercial um, like tourist ski centers and also these private skiing clubs where you like hold on to a piece of rope that pulls you a mile up a mountain and then you hike another mile with your skis on your back. And then you have to like, you know, sacrifice something to the god at the top of the mountain before you can ski down. Like just some mm. really challenging, adventurous stuff. Um, and it breaks her and then it remakes her um, in this in exactly sort of the same structure of the narrative that we get from Cheryl Strayed uh, in Wild that she's out by herself you can't rely on anybody but yourself when you're skiing down a mountain or when you're on the other side of the world from everyone that you love. And it was that sort of displacement and disconnection from everything that was familiar combined with doing something very difficult that she needed to like, push her into really looking at her life, really looking at herself, um, shedding the external expectations of the people in her life. She had really strong relationships with a lot of the men in her life growing up and had and realizes that she had been chasing sort of the masculine version of success mm. and the masculine definition of um, sort of like how we're supposed to be framing what we want in life and what it means to be successful. So she figures out how to understand her identity as a woman, how to understand what she really wants out of life and out of relationships and who, what her true self even is. Um, I read it on a ski trip. I recommend combining <laughs> those kinds of things when you can. Um, it's, it has stuck with me for a long time. And so I continue to recommend it. Just good, uh, brave women doing hard things. There are not enough books mm. about that. Um, I'm going to wreck, I think, the first travel book I remember Ooh, reading, okay. um, which is John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie, oh, so um, in which he may or may not have done the things in this. That's, that's some later debate um, uh, comes later about how much of this is nonfiction and how much of it is embellished. I don't care <laughs> myself. The genre is a travelogue. Uh, it's not... Um, History, um, 90, 1962 is um, when he wrote it about a journey he took across America in 1960 where he took his standard poodle, whose name is Charlie, the titular Charlie, and drove across America in his RV called Rosinante, named after Don Quixote's um, steadfast um, stubborn mule, donkey, steed, <laughs> uh, not ironical at all. And it's wonderful. I just loved it. Um, and I didn't know at the time any of the story is one of those books, I've told this story before, that I got in a box of ratty old paperbacks from my uncle when he graduated from college, from his college reading. So I didn't know anything about Steinbeck or anything else at the time. But apparently Steinbeck was very, very ill with a heart condition that would later kill him um, a few years later and his son later said I'm surprised my mom let him go he could have died at any time and that definitely there is a something one or two notches past nostalgia inflected mm. in the book and I think it comes out of a sunset it's a sunset nostalgia not a you know I'm 28 looking back at my college days kind of nostalgia this is someone looking back at a literary career looking back at a country 
that he has tried to represent um, in a lot of ways. All the way, I think he starts in Maine, goes up here in the Pacific Northwest, and ends goes through Salinas Valley, which he's documented in a lot of different ways, um, through the south and back, back up to New York. It's 10,000 miles or so. Um, a lot happens in those these, you know, 200 and, let's see, what does it say here? 288 pages. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I'm not sure. It might be one of the first of these end-of-life mm-hmm midlife crisis road trips um, where before we had seen the motorcycle diaries or on the road, the young person's road trip, the old person's road trip. This might be the first of these as far as I know. Um, and there's been a lot of them later, um, but an older person looking back and the road trip of ways to look back as rather than a way to discover is really fascinating to see happen here. Um, really wonderful stuff from Steinbeck. It may have been fake, but I don't care. <laughs> You know, I'm not sure how much of this actually happened. Several people have said, we're Doesn't not sure. Matter. We actually took a road trip. His dog's name was Charlie. Everything else in between um, is fine by me if well, it's not necessarily the truest thing call on uh, Tim O'Brien and the story truth versus the happening truth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. If it's, if it's not actually true, um, it could be true yeah. in its own way. Uh, let's do another sponsor, our last one for the show. And uh, do a few more. Okay. Where do you want to go I'm next? sorry for what a straight shot this one is, but I got to pick A Cook's Tour okay. by Anthony Bourdain. Yes. Okay. I wondered. <laughs> I almost picked Cook's Tour Tour, too. Anyway, I've got a good segue off this after the back, so I'm glad you picked Great. it. Um, this was on the heels of Kitchen Confidential, and it sort of picks up after um, some of the first successes that Bourdain writes about having had in Kitchen uh, Confidential, or the first tastes of success, really, that he gets on the heels of that book when uh, he starts to be recognized. Um, but his employers first send him overseas to learn some things about food, and then he gets other jobs where he gets to travel, mm. and he's writing about traveling all over the world, eating and learning about food. And it gave rise to his first um, travel show, which I believe, or maybe it was a short special, I can't remember, was also called A Cook's Tour. And that's a precursor to No Reservations. And then ultimately to um, whatever the CNN show was called that the title is escaping me, uh, Parts Unknown. Uh, It's wonderful. And it's wonderful Mm -hmm. in all the reasons that Bourdain is wonderful, but it marries travel writing and food writing so beautifully. And the ways that food is just inextricably connected to the place that it's from. Um, when I when we both read Buttermilk Graffiti a couple years back, and Edward Lee writes about that in different places throughout America, I thought a lot about Bourdain and how he just deeply sort of innately understood that connection between um, the people of a place and the food that they eat and how significant it is and what it stands for uh, in a culture. So we get France and we get Portugal, but then we also get him in Vietnam and Cambodia and traveling through Asia and learning about how to eat in different cultures, learning about the meaning of the, their food traditions, and then you know ultimately really uncovering himself as well and starting to understand um, why he cares so deeply about food and about culture. I haven't read this one in years. I I do remember really loving it. Um, And I just think if you haven't read Bourdain or if you've read some Bourdain, but you haven't gotten to a cook's tour, you will not go wrong. Mm. I'm going to bridge off that to a short course of recommendations. Three related, I'm sorry, Um, Bourdain 
The other, just one note on Cookstore. The other thing that's fun about Cookstore is that I think we talked mm-hmm. about this when we talked about Kitchen Confidential is that in Kitchen Confidential, Bourdain hasn't been right. anywhere. Like he's been to Japan to help with Lahal there. But part of the fun of a Cookstore is Bourdain discovering yeah. traveling for himself. There's so much wonder. Um, yeah. Um, as a as a dyed in the wool New Yorker, he didn't. I think he was surprised to find how quickly the dye ran mm-hmm. right when putting <laughs> through the wash uh, of international travel. Um, one of the books that most influenced Bourdain was George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and Beautiful. London, which is about George Orwell's time as a dishwasher, cook, scullion. Uh, his, his original title was A Scullion's Diary, working in, in Paris and London in hotels and restaurants, doing the kind of work that Bourdain doesn't do in, in, in his books, but that he describes and admires, mm-hmm. right? The, 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 the porters, the dishwashers, um, the line cooks, and so on and so forth. Um, it's a nice counter to another some of the other books I'll, I'll recommend here in a minute of this. Uh, I mean, he's British, so it's not as much of an expat as, as Stein and um, James Baldwin, who I'll talk about in a minute. But you get to see the other side of the movable feast, um, ex- expatriate days. You get to see the squalor, the dirty dishes, the filth. These certainly would not pass any health code, uh, modern sensibility at all. And you see Orwell starting to do the things he liked to do, is show the parts of the world to people that they're not going to be comfortable with. And interesting, I mean, again, you, if you remember, I did annotate about Orwell, so I learned a lot more about him than I ever did. He tried to get this book sold. It was his first book. No one would accept it. He left it with some friends, and one of his friends took it to a literary agent on his behalf, and they offered him an advance that was a whopping 40 pounds, <laughs> which even in 1930 wasn't very much. The agent then, or the, but that was Victor Galanz eventually took it, um, it got on put on T.S. Eliot's desk uh, when he was an editor, and T.S. Eliot said, I don't think there's a market for this. And if T.S. Eliot <laughs> is telling you there's not a market for your work, that is a tough spot <laughs> to be in. So shout, what a flex for Orwell to, to, to outshine T.S. Eliot in the fullness of time. Um, but for, I, I, know, I know people can hear these books from 100 years ago and worry that they're going to be moldery or I'm going to be back at taking a required Brit Lit class. This is vibrant funny, transgressive stuff. Um, Be warned going into it. There is politics and uh, ethnic and cultural bias of the time that's in there. So it's part of reading most historical works, but uh, I'll recognize that it's part of it too. I like this time. This is what, this is my wheelhouse in Paris, London, New York, in the teens, twenties, thirties, forties. The other side of Down and Out in Paris and London is the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas by Gertrude Stein. Mm-hmm. Gertrude Stein writes, it is real. She's writing as if she's Alice B. Toklas, but she's not. Alice B. Toklas is Gertrude Stein's partner. Um, and their time among the two levels up from the dishwashers, but not too far up, given how much money these people didn't have. But then names that will become part of you know, multi-million dollar works. They're friends with Picasso and other Cubists and Hemingway's there and they're having these parties and it's kind of the, so much of what we have come to associate with Paris and London and New York of the 20s and 30s and this golden age of expatriates is happening in these studios where parties being hosted by Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein are happening. It's, they're a fascinating couple 
Um, still, I think modernity trying to catch up with what Gertrude Stein was trying to do in a lot of ways. But then her writing, in and in it's, a, it's a, the most accessible of Gertrude Stein's work in a lot of ways, not representative of anything she does elsewhere. But writing through the voice of her, her, her romantic partner, who is also smart, also interested, also opinionated, um, and them living in this very, very um, rich and they don't even know, the other part is they don't even know what's going to become, right? You know, there's a dramatic irony in knowing that this is all going to be hugely famous in a hundred years or 50 years, even, even 30 years later, that all the, a lot of these names that you're going to see them have dinner parties and squabbling with are now going to have paintings on the walls of the Metropolitan Museum of Art or, or, or other places around the world. Um, as exciting of a time to have been anywhere as an artist or a writer or someone who cares about the arts. Um, and I think people chase this a lot. You know, young people who want to be artists are chasing this idea of, well, we could be at these moments that become the crucibles out of which whole generations are influenced. Um, and the, the sense of place there, I guess that's the other thing I like about all these times is this place is really interesting. Then, then the last in the short course about sort of Paris <laughs> expatriates, um, uh, Giovanni's Room by James Baldwin, uh, which is later, 1956. It's about the, uh, an American man living in Paris who falls in love or gets into a relationship with an Italian bartender um, at a, a Parisian gay bar. And again, it's the discovery of a world within a world that's so evocative here. And the complexity of what Baldwin's doing is hard to understand now because you know, his first book is Go Tell It on Mountain, which is about, you know, black people in the South and religious experience. The main characters in Giovanni's Room are white people, though they're gay. Um, and Baldwin made an explicit choice, apparently, this is what I've, been, I've learned later, to make them white because, like, the, 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 the sexuality and the racialness he was afraid would be too much um, for everyone. So he took, he made a decision to represent something that he knew about but wasn't his life Exactly, which is always a fun sort of artistic and critical frisson to, to sort of play between those boundaries of what's there. It's also really short. It's more of a portrait, like a sketch portrait of a relationship, which I always find very interesting, too, to see these little moments of time. Um, reminds me of, oh, I can't remember the Psalter. What's the Psalter, Rebecca? The, the most famous one that everybody knows. Light oh, years. Lord. Light years. Um, no, 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 no. Is that the one? Well, the, the, the one. Uh, when he's young and he has a relationship with a French girl and it's just oh, they're kind of um, what's it called it's the famous it's one it's the very first Google one it. <laughs> Google it for me while I vamp about Baldwin um, it's the one everybody knows it's except us apparently it's the very first one I, I read um, uh, anyway so he so it's just these three together port, um, a sport and a pastime a sport and a pastime that's it how by James I, Salter. Man, I can't believe we both It, it reminds that. me of that, of like, I like the genre too of these portraits of a relationship in time that you know isn't going to last forever, but still meaningful in, in a certain kind of a way. But these three together, Giovanni's Room, Down and Out in Paris and London, the autobiography of Elsby Toklas, is not just, it's time travel and geographical mm. travel um, to a time that I, I still find alluring and has a pull that I still can't shake uh, to this day. So those are my three favorite there. Oh, wonderful. Those are such good ones. I think I'm going to... Uh, you love them all together. I think I'm going to wrap up with 
I think I'm hesitant to call it my all-time favorite, but this is the perhaps mm. book about travel that I have been okay. talking about the longest. Um, Alibis by Andre Achiman, which I think, oh, yay. I think at this point in literary culture, I get to declare myself an Achiman hipster. Um, yes, before it was cool. <laughs> I have been talking about him for years before Call Me By Your Name became a big thing. <laughs> Speaking of books that are about relationships that are set very in very particular times where everyone knows that uh, it's not going to last forever, but it's wonderful anyway. Call Me By Your Name is great. Um, mm-hmm. But Alibis is a collection of essays about travel sort of as a concept and construct and experience. Um, there are... Uh, it was the first book that I read that really tapped me into thinking about like why we travel. Like what what is this? Why do we need to go other places? Mm. Like what's the fundamental curiosity and what do we get out of being somewhere different? And he writes about it from his own perspective in ways that I was like, oh, I get this. Like I, it was early in my adult life and travel was just something that was becoming accessible to me. And it was... I just clicked something open in my brain, you know, the right book at the right time um, about Mm. time and identity and both just what it means to be in a different place, but also some of the specific places uh, that he has spent time in and the memories connected to those places. Um, And then there are some pieces that meditate on certain cities that he spent a lot of time in and, and the relationships with people there, like the sort of, um, flashbulb memory moments of like being on a certain street corner in Boston with a certain person he was having a relationship with and like what her perfume smelled like and what he was thinking about and then being in a different city and these other things that happened and it all links together to become like why do we do this what do we get from it um big questions that he finds some answers to. I haven't reread it in years, but I have read it multiple times. And I mm. just, every time that I've dipped back in, like it's one of those where like, I will go looking for a sentence from it every like once a quarter <laughs> and then just sit there and read the whole essay. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I really, really loved it. Um, and I'm happy to claim my Andre Achiman hipster merit badge. So that's alibis. <laughs> Um, I'll end with, um, I think the funniest book about traveling that I've ever read. And it's actually just half of a book. (laughs) Um, the second section of David Sedaris's Me Talk Pretty One Day, uh, the section section is called Duh. And it's about him and his partner moving to Normandy and and trying to, (laughs) trying to adjust, uh, to French life. Um, I think also, I mean, if you want to do... Sedaris in print, fine, but you're missing the real McCoy. Like, if you want to see Shakespeare on the stage, if you can, if you can't see a play, if you can do Sedaris on audio, do Sedaris on audio, um, because there's just nothing like it. But the second part of Me Talk Pretty One Day, David Sedaris, uh, when he first moved to France, is some of the funniest travel writing I've ever heard. I, weirdly, not, a, not, not by nature... Uh, maybe your experience is different. Not the funniest genre, weirdly. It's not. Um, travel writing. Yeah, and yeah. it really could be. Like, there's yes. so much weird, awkward, funny stuff that happens on travel. I thought, based on the run-up, that this was going to be a Bill Bryson recommendation. Oh, you know, I thought about Bryson. I've talked about Bryson before <laughs> on the show. Um, I like Bryson fine. It's it's when I can't get a new David Sedaris. I'll read a Bryson, <laughs> I guess. Shout, shots oh, fired, is. I guess. Wow. 
just I just didn't even know I was holstered there. I mean, there, that's but not quick that much of an insult to be like, well, you can't be David Sedaris, who's basically no, you the can't best be maybe the most popular essay writer of our time. You're, you're the second most, right. the fourth most famous. <laughs> the uh, fourth most famous. <laughs> um, but another one I've recommended too that's funny is Peter Mail's. Um, a year in Prov- his old Provence series where he moved to Provence, mm. but the first one he officially gets there when he's trying to buy a house in Provence and realize that, you know, you pay half in cash under the table to avoid taxes and trying to do all that stuff is amazing <laughs> stuff. Um, but that's, that's another genre of the midlife move to France mm. by white dudes, mm-hmm. a whole genre that I'm, um, I guess also probably says something about <laughs> me, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, Are we doing for some the wish time fulfillment being. there? You know, it's funny. You would think that this would be something I'd want to do, but I wouldn't do that. This is not something I would do, but I enjoy the mm. the um, the voyeurism. Yeah, uh, of it. So, I anyway. I think that's a large part of it for me too. Like, I'm not going to go ski four million vertical feet or ride right. a bike from Oregon to Patagonia. I might hike part mm-hmm. of the Appalachian at some point, um, but part of me yeah. re- really wants to believe that I would, um, or like my backup plan in life which has been sounding more and more appealing lately is just like sell it all and move to New Zealand and raise chickens in a shack in Queenstown. And I yeah. want to, you know, like it's nice to sort of glimpse what you think the sliding door <laughs> could be, mm-hmm. but, but in reality, yeah, I guess <laughs> for me, I'm not looking to trade in necessarily, but I, but like the travels with Charlie, like drive for a summer mm-hmm. that I would do. Yeah. Um, the house by the sea, you know, when you're living in northern Maine in February, I guess I respect the the drive to introspection that that mm-hmm. represents. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I like going outside. I yeah. like going to the movies. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't know what people are trying to escape there. But I'll go along with you um, for a little bit. Any quick hitters? Any last ones that you thought of while... We've been Ooh, talking I, that you want to I shout? did. This one's really sad but wonderful. Um, Traveling with Ghosts by Shannon Leon Fowler. Um, oh, Lord. Yeah. Okay. So she and her fiance traveled a bunch together and on a trip, I think, well, it doesn't matter. On a trip, he was stung by a rare and super poisonous jellyfish and died like within minutes on the beach. Just mm. like they were out in the water frolicking around, having a great time. And then he was dead and her life got completely turned upside down. Um, And as she starts to process the grief from it, she realizes that the best way for her to do that is to continue traveling and to go to Mm. some of the places that they went to together, to go to some of the places that they dreamed of going together, um, like sort of to keep her body in motion so that her mind and Mm. her heart have some time to do what they need to do. Um, And so woven throughout those journeys is reflection on trips that they took together and other like significant parts of their relationship. So the setup of it is really sad. The whole thing is very poignant, but again, a book that really goes to the heart of like one of the, I think, primary functions of travel for a lot of people of mm. um, understanding themselves in a new way or of processing change. Um, I also loved... This is another tough one, and you're going to need to like oh, hold on because it's a father-son thing. Um, no, come on. <laughs> I'll mute. I'm muting. <laughs> uh, the Adventurer's Son by Roman Dial. It just came out earlier this year. Um, Roman Dial and his wife raised their kids to all be very adventurous, very into outdoors life, you know, like not just family camping trips, but like 
family kayak races competing with other people down like major rivers in the West. Um, very much a family that valued individualism and being outdoors and taking risks in service of having big experiences. They spent lots of time living abroad as well, like in the jungle in Bora, 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 Borneo. Um, mm. And when his son is in his like early 20s, Roman Dial's son is in his early 20s, he goes um, to, I believe it's Costa Rica, and sends them a missive that like he's he's going on this adventure they keep hearing from him everything is fine um and then at one point his son says like i'm going on this hike through this jungle and here's my planned route there's no way we're going to have contact but like here is when i should come out and they don't hear from him and they don't hear from him and they don't hear from him and the book is dial's memoir of trying to find out what happened to his son um it's like edge of, it's so compellingly told. It is edge of your seat. Um, a friend recommended it to me when the galley was first out. And I read the whole thing like breathlessly on a flight. I'll probably remember that forever. Mm. Um, difficult stuff. You're never going to read it. And I've accepted that. Mm -mm. Um, but really beautiful. And he really wrestles with like, what are these values that I taught my kids um, in teaching them to be adventurous and to go outside and to take risks. And was that like foolhardy in some way? Or did I set my child up for this? Or did he yeah. make his own decisions? What are and then sort of the bigger picture, like what are our ethical responsibilities to consider for our own safety and other people's safety when we do these things, especially when we're going into other countries um, to do them. So some big mm. questions. It's not an easy one. Um, but I found it just utterly compelling. The I'm going to end with this because uh, I this is a list I started keeping while I was thinking about this topic and recommendations. Travel books by authors I'd like to read who haven't written travel yes. books. I think you're going to like my three. Okay. Number one, Mary Rose. Yes. Because she kind of does. I mean, like, pack, like she travels around to study something, but I kind of would like one that's like explicitly about travel. I mean, pick a topic, but like that travel... Mm -hmm. I don't know, like alcohol, right? Yes. Uh, Mary Roach on alcohol that's also a travel log. I'd read that. So there's one. My second one, Roxanne Gay writes about, you know, being on tour and stuff in some of her books or traveling around and she's really funny on airlines and flying and also not funny and talking mm -hmm. about the biases and other things that go into traveling and being in the public. But I, I feel like I would love a, a Roxanne Gay travel memoir would be fantastic. I don't know what, go wherever. I don't care. I'll read whatever. And then my last one Maybe we'll actually get this. Maybe there's one that's in Italian or something that we'll never read. But like, I want Jumpa Lahiri's Italian travel moved my life to Italy book. Mm. Would, wouldn't you read I that? I totally would. Well, that's a rhetorical question. I know you read that. <laughs> On a scale of 10 to 11, how, how excited would you be for My my Life in Italy by Jumpa Lahiri? Extremely. God dang it. I'd be a pre-order on Audible like nobody's business. Um. So those are my three. Those are so, those are good. Okay, I'm on the spot for this. You don't have to. You don't have to. I'm oh just, no, I want those to are my now. Three. This okay, is a good question. Yeah. Colson Whitehead. Yeah, I mean, I thought about the Noble Hustle as sort of like a travel book, and Colossus in New York is about a place, but not. A, it's not a. Neither of those count. Yeah, this, and I think yeah, Colson totally Whitehead could do that thing where, it, like, it's not Sedaris. It's not funny in the same uh -huh. way Sedaris is, but like Colson Whitehead in unfamiliar places adapting to unfamiliar yeah. cultures commenting on them 
right. is just a thing. And like being uncomfortable is just a, a, mm-hmm. like Colson Whitehead writing about being uncomfortable is just a thing I want to experience yes. for, yeah, for 300 pages. Um, yeah, Colson Whitehead's a really yeah, good pick. Colson Whitehead. Oh, who else? Mm. Jamie Attenberg. Yeah, good one. And I think she has a memoir coming out or she's working on a mm. memoir that might be about travel. So maybe that's kind of a cheat. Um, but I would love to read Jamie Attenberg and Karen Russell. I want a Karen Russell travel oh. book. Oh, <laughs> The Everglades by Karen Russell. <laughs> or Karen Russell in like really new oh, age, like hippie, you know, oh, California. Like Karen Russell out of Florida. Mm. <laughs> Like among the wasps in Boston, yes. on like Beacon Hill or something. Among the wasps <laughs> like, would be an amazing like, time. Or like the Upper West Side. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, You know what? One just struck me too. Um, oh, and I forgot it. So I guess we'll leave it there. Uh, oh, no, I got it. It came back. Uh, Sarah Vowell, yeah. who writes these really great historical romps, I guess is what we'd call them. But like a nonfiction travel across American history Sarah Vowell thing, I would also read. Uh, as well. Okay. okay, we could do this all day. <laughs> um, I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, I know I did. Um, if you happen to pick up any of these, uh, let us know how you liked them. If you've got things you would recommend to Please. us, selfishly, email uh, podcast at bookriot.com and uh, we'll be back at some point talking about something else. <laughs> Rebecca, I'll talk <laughs> to you later. Bye,